following presentation was recorded live by Voices from Jerusalem. The Exodus story, which is certainly one of the most significant events, I would say it's the watershed of Jewish history. As a historical event, it's extremely important for many reasons. And also, I want to deal with two topics which are also very important, but they're interrelated and very hard for us to relate to today. The topics are prophecy and miracles, both of which are sort of supernatural phenomenon that we don't have any experience of today. Yes, sir? What does the reference watershed of Jewish history Watershed meaning it's, 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 a, it's a major significant turning point event in Jewish history. This is the event. So... Uh, we left off last class, we were talking about right, the situation in Egypt where the Jews come in and it starts out great. This again is a model, the whole Exodus story is a model, again a microcosm for the whole story of Jewish history. From bad to good to the ultimate, the, the Mount Sinai is really parallel in many respects with the idea of Messiah. Close relationship, revelation, Okay, going from a very bad situation to the highest heights the pinnacles of spirituality, right? So that's what all this is going on in a very short period of time. Again, a microcosm of Jewish history. So we talked last week, last week we left off about the situation. Jews come to Egypt, it starts out great, rapidly deteriorates. That's a model for the history of the Jew in the diaspora, right? The roller coaster ride from high points to low, and generally the higher we rise, the lower we fall. And that brings us to the beginning of the book of Exodus, which is the story of the Exodus, Yitziat Mitzrayim, going out of Egypt, a story that has been immortalized in numerous films. used to be the film that everyone watched was The Ten Commandments, right? Cecil B. DeMille with Charlton Heston and Edward G. Robinson, Yul Brenner. Now it is that cartoon feature, which probably cost a lot more than the original movie, Prince of Egypt. You have, to, have, anyone, have you guys seen either of those movies? I've seen both. I saw, I saw Prince of Egypt in America about a year and a half ago. Um, well, whenever it was, like a year, last winter, whenever it came out, I was in the States, and I went to point of seeing it just to see how they were portraying the story. I may refer to it humorously. We have to try and clear our minds of, of Hollywood Walt Disney stereotypes. That's the problem with seeing these movies. Then whenever uh, no, no, it's DreamWorks, DreamWorks, DreamWorks Studio. Okay, we're not going to talk about the movie too much now. <laughs> Anyone wants to know, afterwards we'll have a separate screening. Um, anyway. Anyway, um, no, because we'll refer to it a little bit as we go on. It's important to see the, it's interesting, the portrayal in, in Hollywood of, or, you know, of what's going on in the story. But the, the major character of the whole story is obviously Moses. Now, what's the plot line, very briefly? And we're right over here. We're right in the 500 years of the birth of the nation of Israel, phase two, in the womb of Egypt, okay, which is the 116 years of slavery where the Jewish people have gone from a small family of 70 people to by the time they leave Egypt, we're going to talk about a nation of something like 3 million people. Okay? That's a period of very rapid multiplication of the Jewish people. Okay? Into a huge, huge nation. Which, by the way, isn't... People think it's a bit weird. How can 70 become so many? If you think about Mea Shereem, with the average family size between 8 and 12 children, and, every gen- and they have five generations in 100 years. Just do the math. Actually, this is not one of the supernatural things in Jewish history. It actually works out mathematically that there'd be even more Jews based on a very high rate of multiplication you know, of uh, children. It's an interesting topic, though. Anyway, the main character is Moses. What's the Moses story? During the time when Moses is born, there's a, there's a de- decree by Pharaoh to kill all the boys. He, he feels that he, he can't stop the threat, that, that imagined threat the Jewish people are going to be that fifth column within Egypt. So decrees put out that all the boys should be drowned. 
Now Moses, who's from the tribe of Levi, right? His parents, Amram and Yochevet, they decide that he, he is born secretly. They hide him for a few months and they realize they can't keep hiding him like the baby's crying. This is a story, unfortunately, here in the Holocaust, similar things. People trying to hide children. And uh, eventually, what do they do? They put him in the basket. He floats down the Nile. You all know the story, right? It's probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. And he's saved by none other than Batya Basparo, the daughter of Pharaoh. Of course, irony of ironies. And there's no irony. It's all part of the plan. Remember the idea of God putting the cure before the disease? This is the classic case. That the savior of the Jewish people is going to be raised in the house of the ultimate enemy of the Jews is quite amazing. The only modern equivalent I could think of would be like some guy who overthrows Nazi Germany being raised as like Adolf Hitler's adopted grandson. That's about what we have here. It's a really wild story. We can't. We have to put a little modern context. Now Moses is, is great for the same reason that Joseph is great and for other reasons also, but he grows up as grandson of Pharaoh, most powerful human being on earth. He could easily have grown up to be a totally simulated, spoiled Egyptian kid, totally spoiled Egyptian kid. Now, people often ask, you know, how is it that Moses had a connection to the Jewish people? Anyone know the answer? It's, it's clear. His, uh, his mother was the... Right. Miriam, his sister, watches where the basket ends up. He sees Batia picking Moses out of the water. She needs a wet nurse. The Midrash tells us, you know, he wouldn't nurse from... He only wanted Jewish milk, you know. Chalav Yisrael, he was machbid. So, so they get a, wet, a Jewish wet nurse. Now, Batia is a very righteous woman. She clearly knows where Moses is from. Just to show what a great person she is. She's got great PR in the Bible. And the, you know, it doesn't talk about much in the stories of the Bible, but the Midrash talks about her. She's a very righteous woman. She hires a Jewish wet nurse. Who's the wet nurse? Moses' mother, Yochevet. So he's raised by his mother for all practical purposes. Okay? The wet nurse has a lot of contact with the kid. So he knows who he is. If you see that silly Prince of Egypt movie, it's like Moses has this you know, revelation when he's already grown up that he's Jewish. He didn't know until then. And it's like this big, shocking thing, and he didn't realize, and da, da, da. Nonsense. Okay, we have to clear out DreamWorks studio fabrications out of the story and realize that he knows who he is. But nonetheless, he's obviously torn, right? He's, he's in a difficult situation, but he's aware of his identity. We had the famous story of, right, this taskmaster, and it says very clear that he cares about the Jewish people. We know the story of the taskmaster who wants to, who tries to kill this Jewish guy. Moses sees the Egyptian taskmaster beating the Jew, and he kills the taskmaster. And then, of course, some Jews rat on him, which is another classic case we're going to see in, in Jewish history. Jews ratting on other Jews. Pharaoh finds out that his adopted grandson killed an Egyptian. Moses has to flee for his life. Okay, he goes to Midian, which is across the Sinai Peninsula. He comes over to this part of the world. And there, I'm, I'm racing to the story very quickly. You've got to go and read the details on your own. There, he meets a guy by the name of Jethro, who is like a sort of Bedouin priest kind of guy who has a bunch of daughters, one of whom... He's going to marry. Her name is Tsipora, okay, who the Bible describes as being black, whether she's literally black or be- black is beautiful. is a very Jewish idea. No problem from the Jewish perspective. Mixed race marriage is totally cool. Anyway, he has two sons, Gersh and Eliezer. We don't hear much about them, by the way. And he becomes a shepherd. Here we have another example of another great leader of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the 12 sons, Moses, do we talk about what's so important about being a shepherd? Interesting idea. Shepherd, why, why is it... You, you figure in modern Jewish world, being a shepherd, as my mother would say, that's no job for a good Jewish boy. Be a doctor, be a lawyer, be an accountant, you know, open up a business. Shepherd, forget it. Why, why do we have so many Jewish leaders or shepherds? Yeah. I mean, 
you can sit around and contemplate. Exactly. Now, I, I've seen a lot of shepherds in the, in, the, in the Middle East. Most of them sit around like doing nothing except throwing rocks at the sheep and, and daydreaming. But actually, shepherd, you do have a lot of time to think. Now, why is it important to think? All of the people we're talking about, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, they're all prophets. We'll talk a lot about prophecy, an idea which is very hard for us to relate to today because we don't have prophets. But to be a prophet, God doesn't just speak to you. If God speaks to any of you, if you're either, either you're on drugs or you've got a serious mental problem, okay? I suggest seeing, getting help immediately. To elevate yourself to the level where you transcend the reality that we comprehend on a day-to-day level and enter a higher dimension of transcendence, of communicating with the infinite, requires a huge amount of work. Okay, you have to have time to think. Now, if you're a neurosurgeon, as great a job as that is, and as much nachos as it gives your mother, you have to go to med school. You have to go. You have to decide. I remember my older brother decided he wanted to be a doctor by age seven. In America, you got to pretty much decide by age seven you want to be a doctor to get into med school. Then you got to go to college, and you got to go to med school and be an intern and a resident, and then you work. You kill yourself to pay back your loans, and your whole life is spent being a doctor. You are a doctor. That's your identity. It's very hard to be a doctor and a prophet at the same time. Okay, we have people who, you know, probably would have done it. A guy like Maimonides, if he lived earlier, no question, he probably would have been a doctor and a prophet. But that requires an incredible level of work on yourself. Being, having time to think is vital to perfecting yourself, to being able to transcend the physical world and enter this higher plane of awareness. That's why shepherds. And the other reason is, is that shepherds are pra- is practice preparation for dealing with a large group of living creatures. Okay, you have to watch sheep. Now, Jews are not sheep. Believe me. The only animal I could think of that's similar to a Jew, not in intelligence, but in temperament, is like a wildebeest. Yeah. You know, from South Africa or anything, you go on safari, you see, like, like the, the most ornery animal you could think of, you know, water buffalo, something like that. Leading the Jews is one of the hardest jobs on the planet Earth, as we'll see. It's one of the great lessons that we need to learn from Jewish history is the difficulty and the challenges of leading, unifying and trying to lead the most individualistic nation on the planet Earth, which are the Jews. But it's practice. So Moses is the shepherd. Okay, he's out there tending the sheep. He has this vision of this burning bush, which is a fantastically profound story, which you could spend hours talking about the meaning of the bush. A couple of quick understandings. The burning bush is synonymous with the Jewish people in our history. A people that always seems to be on the verge of being destroyed, yet we always survive. Or the burning bush on a more profound level. Fire is synonymous with meaning in Torah, right? Esha Torah, the fire of Torah. A people consumed with an ideology and a worldview that's going to change the world. Whatever you want to read into it, there's all kinds of very profound meanings. But God says to Moses, look, I made a deal with your great-great-great-great-grandparents. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't change my mind, which is, by the way, extremely important to understand. Because later on in history, a lot of different people are going to come. You know, Christians, Muslims, all kinds of people, and claim that God changed his mind. God, he says it in the Bible, I'm not a human being, I don't change my mind. A deal is a deal. Okay, therefore, I have a plan. There's a master plan for the human race and your people play an absolutely essential part in that plan. Therefore, they now must be brought out of Egypt. And remember, it's important to keep in mind that God put us in Egypt in the first place. Super important to understand bad things and good things in Jewish history. It says in the Talmud, you have to bless the bad as well as the good. Okay, when a person, God forbid, dies, you say, Boch Diana Emet. You know, blessed is the the correct judge. Because everything that God does is part of a plan, a higher intelligence, even though we don't see it. He puts us into a situation to take us out of a situation, to create a relationship with us so that we can accomplish our mission. Okay, very important. So it's not just the bad things are the product, obviously, of some evil devil, and the good things are God coming in on his white, you know, the white knight and saving us. So God says this is part of a plan. The womb of Egypt 
where we'd be formed as a nation in a very difficult situation so I could bring you out and establish a special relationship. Therefore, go back okay, and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And it's interesting, by the way, Moses argues with God, I'm not fitting. Very interesting interaction. I don't want to go into in too much detail. In the end, God says, okay, go back. Your brother Aaron will help you. Okay, Moses goes back to Egypt and he stands before Pharaoh. Now, by the way, who is the Pharaoh in the story here? We don't know. We're not sure of the, the exact chronology. Mount Sinai is something like 1313 BCE. If you take the Jewish chronology and put it into the Christian dating system the world uses today. Something like around there. Now, what the problem is when we're dealing with ancient chronologies, this is a big problem. I mentioned already that we don't have historians living back at the time of Egypt. Any historical records that were kept were only kept for the sake of glorifying the Pharaoh or whatever, especially in Egypt, notoriously for just playing around with the stories. The chronologies we use today in modern world history are those bunch of you know dead white guys in the last century who tried to piece together ancient civilizations based on the Christian calendar. They took the reigns of the kings of Egypt and Assyria, the oldest empires in the world. They tried to figure out approximately when they reigned and then tried to work the modern Christian dates backwards in time. There's a huge amount of educated guesswork involved in that. It's not exact. If you open any books on ancient Egypt, you'll get lots of different opinions as to when different pharaohs reigned. We don't know exactly. Those who know don't say. Those who say don't know. Okay. Could be the pharaohs generally associated with the Exodus story are Seti and Ramses. Ramses II, who is certainly the great, the great builder of this period of time in the Middle Kingdom. Anyway, Ramses, we know, was a tremendous builder. Since the time of the pyramids, he was the great builder in Egypt. And it's interesting, the Bible says that the Jews enslaved built Pitom Ramses. Now, of course, when did they build them? We're talking about a period of 116 years. So we don't know exactly when we're talking about. There could have been any number of, obviously, 116 years covers a number of pharaohs. It's interesting, by the way, say that it's Ramses II, we're not sure, that the next pharaoh after Ramses is a guy by the name of Merneftah who ruled from the late 13th to early 12th century BCE. Now, what's fascinating is, of course, that after Ramses, one thing we do know, there's a 10-year period of chaos in Egypt, which could fit. I'm saying could, would, and nothing's definitive here. If Egypt was, in fact, destroyed by 10 supernatural plagues, you'd imagine it would be in bad state for a number of years afterwards. So there we have some evidence of it. Now, what's most interesting, of course, is that the Merneftah, in his uh, temple tomb, they found an inscription, which is today called the Israel Stele. Stele is S-T-E-L-E, is a, a stone on which is carved like an obelisk or an inscription. Okay, on that stele is a inscription about Merneftah's campaigning in the area of Canaan, the Sinai Israel area, <laughs> and it's the first mention of Israel anywhere in human history. Appears we're talking about something going back to around the 12th century before the Common Era, about 3,200 years ago which would correspond in Jewish chronology to sometime after the Exodus story. What does it say? More or less, Israel is a widow, her seed is no more. Meaning, I've basically wiped out the Jewish people, they're gone. Now, that, we can learn a lot of interesting things from that. First of all, the Egyptians lie when they record things. We're here today, 3,200 years later, they're gone. Okay, it's very interesting. They totally would, even if he lost the battle, he probably would still put it. We have no record of fighting the Egyptians then either, for that matter. But... And it's also interesting that at that period of time in history, already we have concrete extra-biblical references to a people called Israel. Very interesting. Very significant piece of archaeology. But again, we don't know. Can't use the Egyptian records too accurately there because of what they are and the nature of, of those records. But let it, we're talking about sometime during the late 14th, 
13 centuries before the Common Era, okay? Late 1200s BCE, early... We're not sure exactly. Okay, so Moses goes back down to Egypt. He stands before Pharaoh with his brother Aaron. Most of the Jews are petrified of what <coughs> to go before Pharaoh. Even the elders don't want to go in. And he says, the God of my people, the yud K vav K, the tetragrammaton, unpronounceable name of God, says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, like, what are you talking about? Who is this guy? I don't know him. Now, the question, it's an interesting question. Why do you say, I don't know him? The ancient Egyptians had around 2,000 gods. Okay, now, you don't, unless they all knew them, they did Hazara, you know, they went back every day and they, like, like we memorized Lahavdil, the, six const, you know, the 613 commandments, they had, like, God Quest, like some game show, you know, quick, God. new, <laughs> you know, it's like, so, so he, he didn't have, like, a laptop to go scan through, you know, God search, so he's probably, like, all his priests are furiously flipping through their, like, references to different gods and they don't find a Yud K guy. Now, again, the notion of an invisible, all-powerful God, as I mentioned before, was an idea that was incomprehensible to everyone, including the ancient Egyptians. Then what does Moses do? Then he takes the staff and he throws it down and it turns into a snake. Now, if, now think of the scenario. This is we're talking about miracles now, okay? Miracles and prophecy. That's what's going on now. If a guy walked up to me I'm in the front of the room here and he said, you know, I am a messenger of God. And he took like a baseball bat and he threw it on the ground and it turned into a python. You'd all be like, whoa, dude, unbelievable, you know. <laughs> Pharaoh's like, eh. He calls in like his four-year-old and he says, you know, do it. And he throws a stick down the ground and turns into a snake. What's the point? Very important point to understand the ancient world. Again, I mentioned this before that we think we're so sophisticated today. Maybe we had better technology. The Egyptians didn't even have metal tools back then, although they were very technologically sophisticated, as I mentioned before, their ability to construct, mummify, you name it. Spiritually, no question, hands down, the ancient world was a far more sophisticated place. Today, we talk about magic, but magic for us is illusion. You know, David Copperfield, magician, or they got that guy who now reveals all the magic tricks and has put all the magicians out of business. That's some guy to show, you know, he shows how every trick is done. It's illusion, okay? It's not really manipulating the forces of nature. <laughs> fundamental idea of judaism is there's a spiritual reality there's a physical reality you can transcend the physical into the spiritual you can use the spiritual to manipulate the physical i think most of us appreciate on some level it's there but because we're on such a low level and because we're so into the idea of everything is rational because of modern science it's very hard for us to relate to this idea in the ancient world doing miracles was not an amazing thing they were a dime a dozen there was in, impure spiritual forces we say people could tie into and do Miracles with them. Manipulate the forces. Why are they there? They're there for an obvious reason. Think about it. If the essence of being a human being is to use your free will, you have to have meaningful choices. If it's a choice between all-powerful God who does awesomely cool things with nature versus powerless bowling pin-sized idol that does absolutely nothing, you know, you're not going to be too impressed. No one's going to worship idol. There's not going to be free will choice. You have to have real impure spiritual powers to be able to see there's power here, there's power there. There's good, there's evil, different forces. I'm going to choose one or the other, whatever. There's different gods fighting it out. That's the way we say God sets up the world, to allow us to really make decisions that are meaningful. So in the ancient world, we have no big deal. We have to understand that otherwise none of the story makes sense to us. Because if anyone did anything supernatural today, we would be totally blown away. Okay, In the ancient world, no big deal. Of course, Pharaoh then... You know, basically says, forget you, take a hike. I'm going to make things worse for the Jews. And then we begin this period of time of the ten plagues. Okay? Ten plagues. Now, again, if you, if you see Prince of Egypt movie, they literally, it's like a, like a one-minute scene in the movie. 
bam, 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 bam. And you read the biblical narrative, it's like, you know, blood and, you know, lice and frogs and, and plagues. It takes place over the period of time of over a year. This whole story is a really drawn-out process. Yes, sir? I, I, maybe you've already touched upon this, but what is your opinion of um, the Prince of Egypt? I sort of talked about it. What is my opinion of the Prince of Egypt? The Prince of Egypt has... It, it's about 80% accurate, actually, and about 20% totally off. So, so it, we, my opinion of it is, it, look, it's a movie, and the reason I don't like it is because when people go and see that movie, when they hear, think of Moses, they're going to think of Val Kilmer, you know? <laughs> so you think it's more of a plus or a minus? I think it's more of a minus. I think yeah. it's more of a minus. As cool as the special effects are, there's a lot of distortions in it. Well, I'm going to mention as we go on a couple of things in there. The movies that the Hollywood portrayals are very important because they color our perception of what's going on in the story. Um... I think for most people, it's a minus. And especially if you go and learn the story later. If, if you go and learn the story later, it's going to picture your way. It's going to kind of destroy the Torahs. You've got to really clear your mind of the images. I see it. It's still in my mind when I think of the story. I, I, I thought for the first decades of my life, whenever I think of Moses, I see Charlton Heston in front of me, you know? <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Yeah. Sorry? Yeah. You mentioned earlier that... In the cartoon, he realized he was Jewish because he had this prophetic vision. No, no prophetic vision. No, no. In the cartoon, he has this. He has this. He's, he he runs outside of the palace and he ends up in the Jewish slave quarters and he ends up confronting his brother and sister Miriam, Miriam and Aaron, and they tell him who he is and he doesn't believe it. And then he has this, you know. Uh. Anyway, if you see it, enjoy it. Okay. But getting back to the plagues, it's a very long, drawn-out story. Now, let's focus here. We're dealing with miracles. And miracles are a very important part of early Jewish history. They're going to cease, and for many, many thousands of years, we're not going to have them. The obvious question is, God, all-powerful being that he is, could make all the Egyptians drop dead on the first encounter with Moses, or they could, like, freeze in place, like stun gun, you know? And then all the Jews could pack up and leave in five minutes. Why does God choose to take the Jewish people through this very long, drawn-out process? It's a very powerful lesson in here. Okay? Now, for, let's, let's talk about miracles first in general. Most, we, a general Jewish understanding of the world is God puts the laws of nature into place. They do not act independently. But we say God doesn't like to mess around with his physical world. You know, remember that parquet margarine commercial? It's not nice to fool Mother Nature. God doesn't like to change the laws of nature. He, God is certainly capable of doing whatever he likes. But he doesn't like to do it. Most miracles from the Jewish perspective are natural phenomenon with awesomely good timing. Let me explain. Here's a great example. Meteorites. Everyone seen meteor? We're going to have a meteor shower in 10 days. A really good meteor shower coming up. Oh, but it's going to be over the... Yeah, visible from Israel. We should have some clear nights. It'll be really nice. I think from the 17th, 18th. Meteor, uh, meteor shower, shooting stars, which are not stars. They're, they're particles. Like In this case, it's going to be from the tail of a comet pieces of rock, the earth is bombarded by something like 2 billion tons of matter every year. Some of it is microscopic, little, little particles of sand. Some of it, you know, are rocks of larger size. Some of it, they make big movies out like Deep Impact or Armageddon, which they, you know, and an, an Ellie, an extinction, an extinction level event, which is what they believe killed off the dinosaurs, like a giant meteor hitting the planet earth millions of years ago, somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay, we understand it's a naturally explainable scientific phenomenon. Has anyone ever seen a meteorite hit the planet earth? No. No. It's a pretty awesome event. I'm sure even something the size of a, a car hitting the planet Earth as a rock would do awesome damage, It'd be like a nuclear explosion. Okay, but if you go to the Hayden Planetarium in New York, you can see there is a whole case there of pieces of rock that have hit the Earth, meteorites. Totally natural, explainable phenomenon. Okay, we all clear so far? Imagine the story. You're walking in Detroit. I was used to using New York, but now New York, thanks to Mayor Giuliani, is an incredibly safe place. So you're walking in Detroit. 
and you're walking down the street and suddenly a hand reaches out of an alley and pulls you in. And a guy puts your, a gun to your head and says, I've had a bad hair day and I'm going to shoot you. For no reason, whatever. He puts a gun to your head, he's about to pull the trigger. Suddenly a meteorite streaks from space, goes right between the two apartment buildings, hits that guy in the head and kills him. What's your reaction? Oh, a meteorite. Now your reaction is you fall down on your knees and you say, thank you God, a miracle. People see natural phenomenon with awesomely good timing. Most miracles in the Bible. I've seen archaeologists talking about Joshua Jericho, where the walls come tumbling down. You know, this part of the world is a lot of seismic activity, faults, an earthquake hit Jericho, brought the walls down. Could be. No problem from the Jewish perspective. It just happens to happen at the time when the Jews are camped around the city and need to get inside the city. I don't think they go, hmm, earthquake, great timing, you know? Splitting of the Red Sea, which is not the Red Sea, it's Yam Suf, whatever the Yam Suf is, I don't even know where it is. Reed Sea, Suf, we're not sure where it is. I've seen a paper by two PhDs in oceanography describing how once every two and a half thousand years, the right combination of winds and tide will cause the ocean to split over the, in, over the area of the Red Sea today. Now, it doesn't go, not, but the water, Napoleon, 200 years ago, witnessed a similar phenomenon. Okay, happens like statistically once every two and a half thousand years. And by the way, here's a great example. If you look in both movies, it's like really in the original Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston is behold the power of the Lord. And, <laughs> and then they have in the uh, in the Prince of Egypt, it's the scene that was 300,000 hours of computer rendering time to make this incredible scene of the water splitting. And it's immediate. The Bible story is the wind blows all night. And by the morning, there's like a dry place that they could walk through. Of course, there's a lot of cool miracles also going on at the same time. You know, pillars of fire and you know, all these other things going on. But here we have another example. Okay, but can you imagine it's the one time you need to cross a body of water and it splits for you overnight, you know, the once in every two and a half thousand years. You wouldn't say, oh, that's a good, interesting combination of winds and tides just happened to happen. You'd say, oh my God, a miracle. That's what's happening in most cases in the Bible. The 10 plagues, however, is a clear example of God flipping the laws of nature on its end. We have hail that is frozen, that is fire, darkness. It's not just like no one can see. Again, in the movie, you have everyone walking on torches. You know, and, and tank, It's clear in the Jewish story. It's a darkness that was felt that you, you couldn't move. You were like stuck in your chair. You couldn't see anything. Okay, All this supernatural stuff, things that would happen to the Egyptians wouldn't happen to the Jews. Why? The whole essence of idolatry and how it contrasts to Judaism is that every force in nature has a god that controls it. In Egypt, they worship the Nile god and the this god and the that god. The ten plagues is designed by God. He says, I'm going to flip all the laws of nature on end to demonstrate, not just for the Jewish people, but for all of humanity, for all of history, the idea that I control all of the world. The whole, the whole world is mine. There's nothing outside my control. And if you examine the plagues now carefully, you'll see that they were designed to show God's control of all forces in nature. So here's where God suspends all the laws of nature, flips the world on end to demonstrate to the world. Okay, very interesting. And that's what happens. Go through the plagues now and you'll see it. Now, do we have evidence for this in archaeological records? There are some oblique, I would say, references, the most famous being the Ipuar Papyrus. Okay, there's a series of papyri. And papyrus's paper, right? Yeah, they had them back then. Where it describes a series of events, blood everywhere, people dying. Could be, maybe not. I, you know, the person who used it a lot was a, is a 
scientist by the name of Emmanuel Vilachovsky, who wrote a book called Worlds in Collision, which is a very interesting book, in which he claims that the whole Exodus story is true, and a comet came close to the Earth, and the dust from the comet turned the water red, and the pull of the comet's gravitational field split the sea, and he tries to explain, because God forbid a scientist will, will go through any number of leaps of faith in science to explain things scientifically, God forbid God should be involved. He uses the Ipwar papyrus. Now, Vilachovsky despite the fact that he's a scientist, you know, people think he's a religious fanatic because he's trying to show these stories aren't fairy tales. He was discredited to a large extent, so people, because he used the Ipwar papyrus, people don't like to touch that document. And we can't know definitively. There are other references in Egypt to the Jewish people being there. I can, anyone wants to see it, I have a copy of the document. I can show, if you ask me after the class. How was he discredited? No, he's considered just wild and way out there. It's too weird, his stuff. It's just like too, you know, he's trying to... Yeah, it's too fantastic. And it's based on, you know... It's closer to the Jewish point of view, but again, God forbid, God should be involved. I don't know if God wants to make a comet come and do all of that stuff, but clearly, if you read the Bible story, not at face value, you see what's happening with the plague of blood is not just water turning red. It's you know the, the midrash says if, if there's a glass of water that a Jew is holding, an Egyptian drinks out of it from a straw, and a Jew drinks out, the Egyptian gets blood, the Jew gets water. You know stuff like that. There's all kinds of cool things happening. So we're talking about miraculous stuff. Okay, which we don't have any appreciation of today because we just don't have these miracles. Okay, so after this long protracted period of plagues where Egypt is reduced to nothing economically, and you name it, the Egyptians and the final plague is, of course, you know, the death of the firstborn. That's a real cool scene in the movie, you know. <laughs> after that, Pharaoh says, you know, go. And by the way, another interesting thing about anti-Semitism in there, it says that, you know, it wasn't just Pharaoh. It says that the, the commentators say that the Egyptians, even the guys in prison said, we'd rather all die than let the Jews leave. We're talking about real Mahadran anti-Semitism, we say. Here. Talk, this is the true anti-Semite who says, I don't care if I take my whole country down as long as I can take the Jews with me. This is a very common pattern. You'll see this certainly when I get to Hitler. It's almost an Amalekite way of looking at the world. Anyway, Jews leave. Three million Jews go out of Egypt or right over here. Okay. Sea splits. We have that amazing miracle. Egyptians follow. They get drowned in the sea. That's the final great event. And then we have a, we have a, we have a 50 day period, which we commemorate with the counting of the Omer. It's between Passover, which again is an opportunity to understand the idea of freedom. We're talking about opportunities in Jewish time. But it commemorates, it's tied to the idea of leaving Egypt. And of course, when you're talking about the idea of freedom, an important idea to focus on here is Passover has been made in the modern Jewish liberal world as the holiday of freedom. Freedom meaning free to do whatever you like and no one to tell you what to do, which is the holy of holies of Western civilization in America. Jewish idea of freedom is, is best summarized by that very famous expression, Hallelujah, Avdei Hashem, Velo Avdei Paro. Praise the servants of God who are not the servants of Pharaoh. Meaning, freedom in Judaism is a means to an end, not an end in and of itself. God didn't bring us out of Egypt so we can go into the desert and party wildly and have no one tell us what to do. He brought us out of Egypt so we could stand at Mount Sinai and commit to a certain responsibility. That's a big world of difference between what the, the way the world looks at freedom today in general, the liberal view, and the Jewish idea of what freedom is all about. And that's the essence of what Passover is all about. <coughs> okay, so we go out of Egypt... We had this 50-day period where God, during that time, it's preparation for what is the most important event in Jewish history, Mount Sinai. During this time, God is artificially lifting us up to a level where we can all attain prophecy. 
It's a very unusual situation. Normally, prophecy is something you have to work for. We were on like the bottom level of spirituality. We were almost down there with the Egyptians. It's very clear the commentators say that God takes out Goyimi Karagoy, a nation from another nation. We were just like them, except for a few little differences. After hundreds of years living in Egypt, assimilated, God lifts us up by our bootstraps, so to speak, and enables us to attain prophecy, which is an artificial way of doing it. Remember in Judaism, ideas, you're supposed to really work for it? Because we really don't work for it, by the way, we don't maintain that level that we're supposed to. If we'd all, like, perfected ourselves and had become prophets like Moses, would we be so lucky, all of Jewish history would have been different. But he lifts us up to a level we can stand at Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is certainly, certainly a totally unique event in all of human history. Okay? In the Bible itself, it's mentioned, you know, in Shemot, in uh, Exodus 4, 33 to uh, chapter 33, it mentions that, you know, this never happened. Several times in the Bible, it mentions that you could check all of human history. You'll never find this a similar story happening that God speaks to an entire people. It also says in Deuteronomy, you can check from one end of history to the other, and you'll never find anyone else claiming such an event. National revelation. Now, if you guys ever took this class we give, you know, proofs of God and Torah, we used to give in Eshet Torah years ago. This is called the historical proof, which is brought down by Yehuda Halevi, who is a great Spanish uh, Jewish thinker, poet, writer, who lived in the 12th century. He actually came to Israel. He was run over by an Arab horseman and died here. But um, Yehuda Halevi wrote a book called the Kuzari. Kuzari is very interesting. There's a, a... in the early medieval period, there was a kingdom called the Khazars near the Black Sea and the Crimea, where the king, we'll talk about them later, converts to Judaism. And eventually, many, many of the people, it's like a Jewish country of converts, very interesting nation, which was eventually overrun and disappeared a little, several hundred years later. But this is the Yehuda Halevi describing the conversation between the king, and I think his name was Bulan, and the, a rabbi who's describing why, you know, he's basically, the king wants to accept a new religion, he's having people present evidence, and this is one of the examples given the uniqueness of the claim of national revelation. And Yehuda Levi talks about it in this book, the Kuzarias. You want to see how it's presented really well, just get a copy of the book. There's many examples in, in English of the book. The basic thing is, what's Mount Sinai? An entire people hears God speak. That's unique. Look at any other claims about revelation in human history, and you'll see they're based on either one individual, like the case of Islam. Muhammad has a revelation. God speaks to him in a cave, and then he convinces a bunch of people he's a prophet. More or less with Christianity, the same thing. A small group of people, they see Jesus you know, be resurrected, 12 guys, supposedly. Not the authors of the New Testament, by the way. That comes later. But the notion of an entire people seeing something is unique to Judaism. By the way, it's the one claim you can't fake. Okay, I can, I can claim that I had a vision last night and God spoke to me and I'm a prophet and I can try and convince you and maybe you're gullible enough and I'm charismatic enough to convince you. I might convince a couple of you, by the way. There'll certainly be dissenting opinions who will not go along. But I, I can't convince you of what you saw. Okay, you know, last night God came to all of you, right, right, didn't he speak and tell you I'm a prophet? Right, 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 he did? You know, and you go, yeah, right. I think the rabbis with the long white coats who get, will give you that jacket with the sleeves that tie around the back and take you away. Okay, so it's a very unusual claim. And, the, and we say that we keep Torah for, for, for thousands of years, not because of miracles or any other cool things that happened in Jewish history, but because we all stood at Mount Sinai and heard God speak. And for generation after generation, that was passed down. Which, by the way, doesn't mean that at some period of time for most of us who are from non-religious homes, doesn't mean that at some period of time someone stopped telling the story and we didn't hear it from our grandparents. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. 
Okay, the chain has been broken in many, many families, unfortunately. The story hasn't been passed on. But one thing you haven't seen in Jewish history, there's no other opinions that it didn't happen. It was universally accepted throughout all of Jewish history for thousands of years. Unique claim, national revelation. An entire people hears God speak. Okay, so that is Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, the Jewish people become a nation. Again, unique event in Jewish history, which is a lot about the Jewish people. Where do we become a nation? Think about it. It's a very unusual set of circumstances. Think of any other nation. How do the French become French? Like one morning they all wake up and decide they like white wine and brie cheese and they're going to speak French? I mean, Roquefort. Roquefort, right. That smelly stuff, yeah. No, it's a process of a people living in a specific geographic area where a language evolves and a culture evolves and common historical experience until eventually they develop a political entity, a government and a king, and they define their boundaries and they make a flag and they, co- and they mint coins and they're France. Okay? Where did the Jewish people become a nation? It's such an interesting and unusual, it's one of the most unique aspects of Jewish history. We become a nation outside of our national homeland. And we don't become a nation by pledging allegiance to the state of Israel or by swearing to eat bagels on Sunday and Chinese food and whatever else you do as Jewish cultural experiences. We become a nation by saying, Naseh v'nishma. We will do and we will listen to the Torah. Just as we recommit, it's like a giant conversion process. Just as Abraham said many, many generations earlier, I choose to live if necessary to die for the reality of God. And that's what makes me different and special and gives me a unique historical mission in human history. So to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai say, now we were until this time just the descendants of Abraham, who had sunk to a very low level because of being in a very spiritually impure place. Now we rededicate ourselves to a unique mission in human history. We become the Jewish people. And again, fundamental idea to understand, and I may have said it before, Judaism is not a religion. Being a Jew is not the same as being a Christian. Okay? A Christian is a religious belief. You can be British, English, American, French, and have a religious thing is what you do on Sundays, I'm a Christian. Okay? Judaism is. Now, we're confused about our identity because we've lived in diaspora for so long. We think we're like everyone else, but we're not. And believe me, the rest of the world will always remind us we're not. Another great message of anti-Semitism. But being a Jew is being part of a people and a nation, which does have a land, does have a language, does have a history, although, albeit for the last 2,000 years, we've had very different historical experiences, one Jew from the next, and very di- even language, you know, we speak different languages, whatever. It's there, though. But we have a specific relationship with God, which is not a religious thing. It's an all-encompassing view of the world, how you live every second of your life, which is unique in the world. Okay? And it's not a religious thing. There's a spiritual component of it, which we associate with religion, but it's an all-encompassing way of life. You join the Jewish people, you're joining a nation, you're joining a people. Not a racial thing either, by the way. And you can be any color and shape in the world and become Jewish. There's not a human being on the planet Earth who cannot become Jewish. Okay? Very interesting. But we have to keep that in mind. But our identity is forged by the experience at Mount Sinai where we commit to a mission, a people with a mission and a specific way of life. We're going to call Torah, which is our guidebook for accomplishing that mission on a personal and national level. A question, Max? No, I was just going to say, I mean, but, I mean if, you, if you speak to a really religious Christian, I mean, I, I think that they probably would feel that they would view their religion in the same way that you're describing Judaism, considering, I mean, I mean I'm talking a committed person to their faith. It's a spiritual heritage. Yeah, 100%. But they won't tell you that they're a member of the Christian nation. 
there's a Christian nation with a flag, and uh, you know this is our and this is our national homeland. They'll say yes, we have a, definitely we have a cause in the world, we have a spiritual reality. It's all important. I'm not saying they don't believe their religion is important or not, but it's not being a Christian is not the same thing as being a Jew. You're not joining a people. You're converting to a religion. No Christian will ever say you're joining a nation when you become Christian. Okay, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. They have a pan-Islamic view of the world. We have a spiritual mission for the world. It's definitely there are definitely similarities in the idea of the mission which they took from us: messianic redemption, bringing the world to a certain reality. But it's not the idea of a nationhood. We get to Christianity. We'll talk about it much more. But it's a very good question. It's a good point. Now, remember what we're at Mount Sinai. Okay, we say Nasev Nishma. What do we get at Mount Sinai? By the way, this is a very confusing thing for most people. The first, God speaks to the, he tells Moses, go down the mountain. Why? Because I want to make sure, God's saying to Moses, that when, when they hear me speak, they don't think it's some tricks. Like, this is not like a big Grateful Dead concert with a huge sound system up there on Mount Sinai, you know, and you're going to hear this loud voice, and they're going to put on some fireworks display, and everyone's going to be, ooh, that's cool, it must be God. Rather, you go down the mountain, Moses, you, my greatest of all prophets, so the people will see that you're not speaking. Not like the Wizard of Oz, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the, in the screen with this, you know. No, it's you go down the mountain. So the people will, and it was a supernatural experience. That the people, they saw sound and they heard color. Like every, the sense is a completely unique experience in, hum, in human history. You go down the mountain so the people will see that it is me speaking. And it's because of this and this only that they will listen to you, Moses, and they will follow my Torah. Now, what do the people hear? They hear God starts to speak to them about the commandments. He starts to hear, I am the Lord your God. And it says they heard it all simultaneously. Another thing, it's impossible. And their souls left their bodies. The Midrash says, very interesting. Why? Because it was such an intense spiritual experience. Very profound, by the way, metaphysical point of Judaism. That, you know, this physical world on some level is an illusion. It's only a creation of God. The reality is God, the transcendent. If you were to hear the infinite speak, whatever that means your soul would realize that it's really only stuck in like a playground, like an illusionary th- stage, and it would leave the body. It doesn't want to be there. Not like people drop dead of fright. But it's such an intense experience that the physical world becomes sort of like meaningless and buttle, as we say, you know, non-existent. And the souls had to be restored. It was too intense. I don't want to go and tell the stories. It's very interesting. The first thing the Jewish people get, however, really important, because we're talking about on the bottom of our little time charts here, we have the transmission of different pieces of Torah. Moses spends 40 days, after the original revelation, he spends 40 days talking to God, God talking to him, dictating to him what? He doesn't come down Mount Sinai with the Torah scroll. He comes down with the Ten Commandments. He actually comes down with the 613 commandments, 10 of them which are on stone. Why those 10? Interesting topic, not for this class. They they encapsulate everything. And the principles of how to apply them. The 613 commandments and the principles of how to apply them. The oral law. He does not come down with the written law. The oral law is given first. It's the oral law that is exclusively until modern times in the domain of the Jews alone. It's the oral law that keeps us Jewish. It's the oral law that tells us how to live as Jews. The written law is written over the next 40 years. God dictating to Moses. Obviously, if God gave it all in advance, can you imagine you had a book? It says, tomorrow, you're going to walk out your door and slip on a banana peel. You're not going to be that stupid. You can open your door very carefully and check right and left for banana peels. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's explaining what's gonna, what happens later on. Obviously, it wasn't given in advance. There'd be no free will. So God is dictating to Moses what to write in the latter parts in the five books of Moses. Okay? But what the first thing the Jewish people get... Okay? is the 630 commandments, the principles of how to apply it. And then we see at the end over here, you look on your little timelines, 10 commandments, 1312 BCE, and then 1272, 
the Torah is completed, meaning the written Torah. And they're part and parcel of the same thing. You cannot have one without the other. I cannot emphasize strongly enough how significant the oral law is. Okay, you can't live as a Jew without it. It's going to become a very important issue when we look at splinter sects in Judaism later on in Jewish history. Now, again, we say it's called the five books of Moses. It's not Moses is not the author. Moses is the scribe. He's the ultimate scribe. God dictates to Moses. And it's very clear. The Bible says over and over again about Moses that he is unique amongst all prophets. We're going to talk about that. It's very, the Bible says in the Talmud, in, um, I believe it is Yuma, talks about how many prophets there were in the world. Like a thousand prophets from... Uh, it, was, it, was, um, it was a huge amount. Yeah, no, no, excuse me. A million. There's a million prophets. Yeah. A million prophets from basically Moses till the end of the first temple period. Okay, a million prophets. And Moses is unique amongst all those. The Bible is very clear that there is no one... If you look in uh, Deuteronomy 34.10, it says, And there arose no prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Meaning, prophecy, we say, is you transcend to a higher level of spiritual reality. Depending upon, all prophets are not equal. Like all physicists are not equal in their understanding of the physical universe. Depending upon the higher level, the more your direct experience of the infinite. Most prophets, we say, in Jewish history that we know of, and most of them we don't know about at all, would get a vision and put that vision into words. Moses' prophecy is unique in that God speaks to him. Okay, he hears whatever that means. How can you hear God speak? It's a separate question. I can't explain it. But it's direct dictation, which is why the five books of Moses has a unique position amongst all holy books of the Jewish world and a unique authority in the Jewish world. Okay, so here we are at the pinnacle of Jewish history. The entire nation experiences prophecy. The people are united, by the way. The Torah is very clear. It says, Very important point based on how you read the, the, the use of the verbs there, the people camp, one people with one heart, meaning one of the keys to achieving the high spiritual level is we have to do it as a nation united, not divided. Okay, because of that level we're at, we're able to do it. So we're going to stop here now with this Mount Sinai event, the high point of Jewish history, and tomorrow we'll pick up with, uh, we'll follow through the rest of the stories in the Bible and get to the death of Moses and the end of the uh, five books of Moses. This program is part of a series. For the continuation, please insert the next disc.